Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So we are talking about such a fun topic today, and it makes me want to sing a song, the diarrhea song. Yeah, the diarrhea song. Do you remember that song? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. I I'm not going to sing it now. Okay, let's not. Yeah, let's skip that. Okay, skip. Today, we are talking to Dr. Martin Martin. So he's someone that we've been wanting to talk to for a long time. And as most people in the field know, um, he's spent his life studying the, uh, the clinical dilemma of the neonate or infant with severe diarrhea, especially congenital diarrhea. So Dr. Martin is a pediatric gastroenterologist at UCLA. He's a professor of pediatrics at the David Geffen uh, School of Medicine at UCLA. He's the associate vice chair for translational research uh, in pediatrics. He's also the co-director of the UCLA Center for Pediatric Diarrheal Diseases. (laughs) So I think most people know I grew up in Los Angeles. I love LA. Really? I I don't think I've actually been there. What? I've been to San Diego a million times for conferences. I've never been to LA. So, oh my God, that blows my mind. But um, I think LA is a little bit hard to visit and really appreciate because it's Mm -hmm. so spread out. Mm -hmm. And to me, I feel like the strengths of the city that you can't match anywhere else. Also, one is like the diversity of the food. Mm -hmm. And the second is going to be the beaches. Mm -hmm. And... uh, it's yeah. People complain the traffic is horrible. It's hard to get anywhere. Probably but, uh, is. It is. It is definitely horrible. But something about it, LA is the best. Hashtag worth it. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, all right. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Martin, thank you for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds. Well, it's great to be here, Peter and Jen. Let me tell you, I I just want to thank you that, and I'm really honored that you guys asked me to participate in Bow Sounds. I did mention it to a few of our fellows, and they were really, really impressed uh, that I was asked to be part of the, the podcast. So you know, I want to <laughs> thank you for enhancing my impressions, the fellows' impressions of me, you know, even though it's going to be really fleeting. Well, so, no, you know, thank our whole you. goal is to make people feel cool. That's why we do it, so we can oh, cool. no, we choose people who are cool. Oh, yeah, yeah we yeah. choose no, people so. who are cool. We'll also have a sticker for you, and we'll hopefully yeah, see we'll you in Nashville it. and have a drink over and talk oh, about this. Or we'll just fly to LA. Yeah. <laughs> or we'll go to LA. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to LA. No, but thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. So we are going to start with perhaps the most challenging question. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So I'm a physician scientist interested in the genetics and the biology of luminal disorders that result in intestinal failure. You're one of the few people who actually did one sentence. Maybe the is, one. Uh, that's, yeah. that's very impressive. Um, okay, so another question we started to ask since ever since COVID started, and it seems like it's probably never going to end. Um, so tell us, tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or a movie that you read, listened to, watched recently that you would recommend. Well, this is where I'm going to go over a bit. Okay. So, okay. Okay. So I, I'm on my, on my Peloton every morning Ooh, for like 45 minutes, right? Both What's your Peloton username? Fans, yep. So can't tell you that. Yeah. yeah, yeah is- <laughs> so I, I'm always, I, I shut the volume off and I'm just listening to my podcast. Mm. 
And I listened from a science side, like New England Journal, super nerdy, right? Uh, the, the Stem Cell Podcast. And of course, Bowel Sounds as well. Oh, thank right? you, thank you. I listened to The Daily, which is a New York mm -hmm. Times thing, uh, 538, uh, The Lincoln Project I listened to. So I know that sounds like a lot, but I, everything's a 2x. Oh, really? So yeah, I've trained myself to listen to things super quickly. So that's cool. From a movie side, I thought like a really cool movie to see. Uh, it's probably off many people's radar. Is my octopus uh, yeah. teacher? Okay, have you seen that? It's really oh. cool. I have not seen it, but I think it's on, it's on Netflix, teacher. right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. A, yeah, it's worth it. So you know, we've had a lot of episodes on on bowel sounds about constipation and this is our first episode about diarrhea so Whoa. before we really get into like the nitty-gritty how did you become interested in studying and care for <laughs> infants and children with diarrhea okay that's a great question so for me at least I think becoming a pediatrician was really like an innate instinct that I had I think many of us are kind of like that um, so one of my uh, first rotations was actually pediatrics at Boston Children's and saw lots of kids with failure to thrive. Um, and during that particular rotation, I did a, I went to a noon lecture, whoever thought noon lectures were important, right? And Alex Flores, uh, who was either a fellow or a young faculty member at the time, gave a lecture on his own experience managing kids with diarrhea in Central America. And I thought that was like a great lecture. God, I got really enthused about it. So I decided to do a rotation, a second rotation in GI. And in that subsequent rotation, I saw a whole lot of patients with genetic GI disorders. And of course, molecular diagnosis of these like monogenic disorders, meaning single gene causing a single phenotype, was really at the time in its early infancy. So we saw lots of patients and we relied on family histories, clinical phenotyping, clustered patients into these various vague disorders at the time. And I think that experience kind of sealed my interest in PGI. So why diarrhea, why the stuff that I do? And so that goes back to when I was a resident and early in my fellowship at UCLA. And I was selected to be part of the Pediatric Physician Scientist Training Program, which really trains pediatricians to be bench researchers. I was fortunate enough to end up in a lab here at UCLA by a prominent physiologist who was cloning, meaning isolating for the first time, really intestinal transporters. And at that time, he isolated the sodium-dependent glucose transporter, which basically transports aluminal glucose um, anytime we consume a glucose-related product. So following the cloning of the gene, which I participated in, I just was able to describe a particular disorder called glucose galactose malabsorption at a molecular level. And really, this experience really led me to investigate the biology of monogenic disorders resulting in intestinal failure and diarrhea. And that really remains my main uh, scientific passion at the time. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. incredible. It's also crazy that like a, a specific noon lecture by oh, Dr. Flores, you remember, and that kind of sparked this whole career. Yeah, that's isn't it amazing? Sometimes yeah. it's the seemingly uh, just by chance right. interaction with somebody could be in the hallway, and that could kind of turn your career in a different direction. It's really amazing. Yeah. 
That's awesome. So, you know, today we're specifically talking about congenital diarrheas and enteropathies, or do you call it codes? Or Code. Codes. Codes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Codes. There we go. But, yeah. you know, so those are very different than the than the more common infant who is having diarrhea. So what makes those infants different than the more common, maybe older infant with diarrhea? Break the code for us. <laughs> Break the code. Okay, sure. So, yeah, I think you're right. So really mild forms of diarrhea are pretty common, right? They're transient, they're you know short-term and mild, but severe forms of diarrhea are really distinctly rare. And it's really one of the most important, the severity is one of the most important signs to look for um, when you're considering somebody with code. So among the important questions, the age of onset is also a super important clue to listen for, right? And so in general, the vast majority of children with monogenic epithelial uh, forms of code, like microvillus inclusion, tufting neuropathy, will present in the first week of life, if you listen very carefully. There are a couple of caveats here. Um, The stools actually look a lot like urine because it's so watery. And so first-time parents and sometimes even nursing staff can actually miss the diarrhea because it, it looks so much like urine. Other cases of code who actually are perfectly normal in the first four to six weeks of life where you can document normal stools, normal weight gain, who subsequently develop diarrhea, maybe a little bit of vomiting, that can be lumped up into a second group compared to the epithelial ones, right? So severe diarrhea in this group um, with the onset of diarrhea that begins beyond the first month really can have very abnormal uh, biopsies, endoscopic biopsies, you know, dominated by acute, maybe some chronic inflammation, abnormal architecture of the epithelium. And they can also have protein-losing neuropathy, right, in that particular uh, group of patients. So uh, I think you can separate these. So these are kids who are a month to six weeks when they first started to develop symptoms, really into two kind of broad categories. They're going to be one group. The patients get better. And you can see that clinically in some patients with infectious causes, food-induced types of uh, diarrhea. So that's like the Calmo allergies, the FPIs of you know, food protein-induced enterocolitis, which could be maybe a lot more vomiting history, uh, but certainly diarrhea can be a component of that. And those individuals can develop really significant diarrhea requiring hospitalization, requiring, in fact, TPN. But the key here is that it's usually transient, right? So there's usually resolution of the infection that occurs spontaneously, or when you discontinue the offending allergen, the patients get better. And you can see that clinically in the hospital setting. So most of those patients don't have what we would consider monogenic disorders, right? So what you look for is really a second group of patients. Once again, they're not epithelial. It doesn't present in the first week of life, typically beyond a, a month of life. And these guys have persistent diarrhea, right? So these are really the immune-mediated causes of code. Mm -hmm. They have persistence of diarrhea, and the biopsies can show chronic inflammation, cryptapoptosis, short villi, long crypts, and the like, right? And a group of these patients can actually 
have persistence of viral infections, for instance. So this latter group, you can put them into the way at least I think about them, the autoimmune neuropathies, the primary immunodeficiencies, or the broader category of VEOIBD, right? Really the first two months of life. So that's how I basically look at it. Wow. That's a, that's a long answer to it. No, that was no, great. I think it's important to go through that. But I, yeah. I want to go back a little bit even more because when people say diarrhea, I think to a lot of people, it's like, hey, I'm going to know it when I see it. But from a practical standpoint, how do you decide whether an infant actually has diarrhea? And, you know, I know you're going to talk about quantification, which is challenging, especially if it looks like urine. So do you have any tips for how to quantify a stool? Qualify, quantify. Quantify. Well, Jen, that's a great question. But let me tell you, I'm like amazed after I started getting involved in next generation sequencing and how we're able to comfortably sequence a baby, you know, a child's 3 billion nucleotides, okay, within a couple of weeks. Yet, <laughs> we really have a hard time quantifying right. schools accurately when the infant has severe watery diarrhea, okay? It's, at some point, we're going to figure that out, right? Uh, but the geneticists are way ahead of us. So I think, of course, there is a short-term catheter, maybe one or two days, to really kind of, is it, you know, what, is it made worse with feeds? Is it not? There's certainly the double diaper method. There's some really not nice videos that you can see how to do that. Helpful, particularly in, in boys. And if the diarrhea is really malabsorptive, uh, what I've learned on some patients recently is if you you have the family change the diaper just before a feed and then quickly change it once the family gets the subsequent precise auditory and olfactory cues yeah. that the child <laughs> basically defecated, then they can weigh the diapers and they can get accurate measurements. So you really need engaged parents who are willing to do that. Nursing staff really can't, at least in my experience. Yeah. So I think that's very helpful in those patients with malabsorptive diarrhea because the diarrhea really starts short time after feeding. So I would also suggest that on an outpatient basis, so these are kids with more milder forms of diarrhea, once again, motivated families, they can be trained to use these, these methods, right? So I encourage them to buy inexpensive food scales to weigh diapers, you know, over the course of three days to see, see what's the volume, because that's an essential part, right? Is this kind of loose stools with low volume or is it really large volume stools? So those are my recommendations. I going to bring up, so when I was a fellow, one of the patients that had like the biggest impact on me was a baby who had congenital diarrhea. And uh, you've probably heard this story many, many times, but for the first several weeks spent, you know, her uh, first, you know, weeks of hospitalization on the ID service, the nephrology service. It was always thought to be urine, like high urine output, electrolyte, electrolyte abnormalities. And then finally, you know, we found that this baby had glucose lactose malabsorption. Oh, and, cool. Uh, did you call me about that? I did not. <laughs> this is before Dr. Bali came to join us. Otherwise, I definitely would have. Yeah. And that's why it's nice to work on these really rare disorders occasionally you're going to get a phone call about somebody who's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unlike some of the stuff that you do, Peter, where constipation is so common, right? Right. 
But uh, sometimes we get calls about severe cases of. Do you though? <laughs> no, it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no a million people they can call, Peter. Uh, okay, it's okay. just Dr. Martin. All right, cool. Um, but yeah, I, but I did. Ah, this is actually before. I, I currently reference your 2018 gastro article about advances in the evaluation of the infant with diarrhea all the time. I send it to all my students and residents and fellows. Oh, so good. anyways. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so I also had a story similar to that, but your article was not out yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I was an intern, the very first patient I saw, I was on the GI service, had really bad diarrhea and eczema and ended up with uh -huh. IPEX. And it was yeah. the very first patient that I took care of who had genetic testing. And it was, it was just a really impactful yeah. moment for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. And you probably haven't seen another one. So. Nope. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we think about it a lot. You think about Anyways. it, yeah. Um, so, you know, you kind of already did this in the answer to your question about describing what an infant with congenital diarrhea looks like. But, you know, let's say they fall into that first category where you have an infant yeah. admitted, they have severe diarrhea, um, and it really did start within the first few days of life. You know, so we alluded to this article where you nicely outlined, like, how this evaluation should go. But just at a basic level, how do you usually think through that evaluation? Like, how do you try to categorize and narrow down yeah. your differential? So this is my approach. So I want clinical context, right? Is this kid a preemie? The kid go to the operating room? Mm -hmm. Are there seemingly unrelated kind of medical problems? You got to get that background information, right? Because the clear GGM patients, for instance, they're perfectly fine and then they're like, you know, metabolic acidosis, super sick, um, but they don't have any other issues, okay? So I want to hear that. And then, uh, then the thing I begin to think about is, well, I need more information about the diarrhea. So is there evidence in utero? Is there evidence of polyhydramnios, right? And then postnatally, super important, what's the age of onset? When was the diarrhea first detected? Once again, sometimes parents are not great historians, first-time parents and so forth. So you got to look at the rest of the data. And then the next question is, does the diarrhea abate with fasting, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so diarrhea that really persists with fasting really would suggest abnormalities of electrolyte absorption and secretion. Some people would call that secretory diarrhea, right? We'll get into that, I right, think, later. Right. And then stool electrolytes are sometimes helpful in that particular entity, right? So if alternatively the diarrhea uh, abates with fasting, that would put you into the malabsorptive component. And there are actually two kinds, in my mind, generalized malabsorptive diarrhea or nutrient-specific. Generalized meaning any kind of nutrient you give, you're going to get diarrhea. Selective, i.e. lactose intolerance, is quite different. Glucose, lactose, malabsorption, sucrase, isomaltase, quite different, right? So in that group of individuals where you hear that there's malabsorption because you fa they're fasting and diarrhea goes away, you've got to do uh, consider doing dietary challenges, especially when you have good IV access, mm -hmm. okay? I think that's really important. 
And I think what you have to do, I would consider doing this full caloric challenges. This is where many people make mistakes. Um, give them the three ounces of formula that we use, RCF, Ross Carbohydrate Free, without any carbs. You can add it with glucose initially. It is their diarrhea. You want, yes, black and white answers here, right? So you don't want to be kind of having them at 10 cc's an hour and bumping up to 20 or 15 and 10 days later, you get up to, you know, 40 cc's. You need boluses because it's really important in putting patients into the right category. And, you know, if you've got venous access, you should be perfectly fine. And then I want to say, okay, what about if it's RCF and I change the, get rid of the glucose and put fructose? Is that better? If it is, then that's your GGM patient. Mm -hmm. And then the other possibility is you just give them RCF, which is just protein and fat. And patients with generalized malabsorptive diarrhea can actually have diarrhea with just the protein and fat without carbs, okay? So, um, so then if it's generalized malabsorptive diarrhea, I think, you know, is there a reduction? And so these guys must have a reduction in the nutrient absorptive capacity. That's how I look at this. Mm -hmm. um, so to check that, you want to look at surface area, right? So you got to do an upper GI small bowel follow through make sure it's not a congenital anomaly or congenital shortcut or malrotation. I think that's important. And then histologically, um, that's going to be important. You're going to have to biopsy these individuals under most circumstances. Um, and so you look at the gross um, epithelium. Is, do you have villus atrophy? Do you got small crypts, long crypts, longer than normal crypts? Do you see evidence of epithelial crowding? You have to do staining, right, with various antibodies, CD10 to look at the brush border. To look at adhesion, you got to use Mach 31 for tufting enteropathy type of disorders. And then you need to look at the endocrine cells. So you got to look at chromogranin. So that tells you whether or not there are endocrine cells that are present. And then finally, you look at the infl inflammatory component, right? Is there diffuse crypt architectural changes? Is there apoptosis, neutrophils, and plasma cell infiltrates in the lamin appropriate? You see a lot of intraepithelial lymphocytes. These all suggest kind of immune-mediated disorders. So you mentioned the gastro paper, um, the code paper, uh, but we also have an up-to-date chapter we've got um, we're working on the fourth one but there is one specifically on this topic that is kind of nice because we can update it mm -hmm. right so right, right. as things change we can update it over time yeah well and everybody mm -hmm. goes to up to date right probably, probably before PubMed. anyway so yeah we'll definitely <laughs> yeah. we can link it in our uh, the notes for our show oh that's a good idea yeah. um yeah. so that was excellent I, I think just to kind of follow up on a few things you said so first of all so one of the big first uh i guess uh I don't know. Branch in the pathway. Branch in the pathway. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the, you know, the, a trial of NPO. Um, yeah. How long do you usually do that? Do you like, how long do you need before you see pretty clearly like 24 hours or two? Yeah. You usually 24 hours okay. is sufficient. <clears throat> you don't yeah. need that much time. Right. And I'll, yeah. Wait. Sorry. So let me, let me ask a clarifying question on that. Cause if it's 24 hours, do you do that at home? 
Or are these all patients? Oh, no. These these kids are going to be in the hospital. Yeah, because they're pretty sick, right? Yeah, they're going to be sick. They're going to come in dehydrated, limp, you know, breathing quickly. So, yeah, no, that's all done in the hospital. And then I thought it was, I thought like it was very uh, helpful to hear you say that it should be boluses. Because I think all of us, I don't know, I don't, at least for me personally, I'm always like, well, we should start small and. I can I can understand yeah. though it kind of drags on the trial because maybe yeah. the volume by itself was helping. Yeah, that's because Peter, because we're so used to dealing with kids with short gut, which mm-hmm. is much more common, right? And we try to figure out what's this kid's absorptive capacity. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, you know, I look at it as a, a cup. Yep. First time you're managing these patients, you have no idea how big the cup is, mm. right? Yeah. You keep filling it up with nutrients. At some point the cup spills over the analogy here of course in kids is that that uh, counts for the diet that's the diarrhea mm-hmm. right so that's where you you know it's helpful in the short gut patients but in these this group of patients if you have IV access do the challenges get to the conclusions and move on right yeah. that's what I would encourage yeah and actually uh, Ross carbohydrate free formula I didn't realize until recently that it's only 13 kcal per ounce which is significantly less. And so yeah. that, that was a... Right. Yeah. So if you add the carb, then you'll get up to 20 kcals. Yeah, interesting. So I want to also follow up on mm-hmm. one other piece that you mentioned, because you did mention sometimes needing to do a scope or do an endoscopy for biopsies. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? So when do you consider doing that? And when you do, what do you actually do? Do you do an upper and a lower? Do you just do the lower? Yeah, so if the diarrhea is severe, then under most circumstances, I think that uh, an endoscopy is really going to be important early in the evaluation, right? So I think there's there may be one exception here, and and those are patients where you have evidence of nutrient-specific forms of diarrhea, like a lactose intolerance, like a GGM patients. So that's where appropriate dietary challenges maybe much faster. You can say, okay, the patient cannot absorb glucose, but absorbs everything else and gains weight. So I think under those circumstances, you don't really need to consider endoscopy if it's really that clear cut, right? So, um, but when you do the endoscopy, I think, you know, under most circumstances, an upper and a lower endoscopy really uh, should be considered. A flexig, of course, is sufficient for the lower. Um, so why is the upper endoscopy helpful? Well, for classic features of like microvillus inclusion disease, colonic biopsies are a lot more subtle than small bowel biopsies. And I think also if you're dealing with immune-mediated um, disorders, you want to look at the entire bowel if you can. So, you know, the hard part is getting the kids sedated, intubated, and get the family ready for that. And so you might as well really do go from above and below if you have that opportunity. So histologically, I think that's going to be really important. This is what you have to do. Your stains, as we discussed earlier, you got to do, you know, I think EM is helpful if you're dealing with the, you think you're dealing with a brush border problem. Um, Disaccharidases, some some centers use them. Uh, Those could be helpful. And on a research basis, you know, it's really cool now. We can take biopsies and grow the epithelium 
in culture indefinitely. So, yeah. and that certainly is helpful for research purposes. So I noticed you had some uh, hesitation about disaccharidases. Like what are, I mean, do you use them or, or do you feel like there are limitations I, that kind of? Yeah, no, I, I, it's just that it's never been something that we did here at mm -hmm. UCLA. Um, I think by challenges, you should be able to work through dietary challenges through most of yeah. them. Um, but uh, I don't think it's essential. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my take. Okay. Under, yeah, under most circumstances. Technically hard too. You have to put it on ice, do a specific yeah. thing, yeah. blah blah blah. It's infant, a bit hard. right? And like a, there's some sampling error. I mean, I think there's some limitations there. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. And then again, going back to something you said before. So, um, you know, I think all of us have been taught that diarrhea is either osmotic or secretory. Mm. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, do you feel like that's correct? Do you feel like there's a more uh, a more accurate way of of trying to categorize disorders like that? Well, kind of broadly speaking, really characterizing this stool pattern um, is super important, right? Fasting versus uh, is there improvement or not? That's where everything basically begins. However, separating them into the classic forms, osmotic versus secretory, is really technically flawed mm -hmm. concept, right? So it, it's really more accurate to look at these, um, what's what was once considered secretory diarrhea as abnormalities of electrolyte absorption and secretions, right? It's all about the electrolytes if it's the secretory form. And then similarly, instead of like an osmotic diarrhea, it's more accurate, I think, to consider it uh, as either a generalized or nutrient-specific form of malabsorption like we talked about in your uh, prior question. So, you know, I know people's eyes get a little like uh confused when <laughs> when we discuss these kinds of things but it's really pretty straightforward mm -hmm. i think so uh so the important subtlety here is really that all forms of diarrhea is really osmotic sure. okay and the gut epithelium is really semi-permeable and that means that water can flow across the membrane because of osmotic pressures. Um, and osmosis provided by uh, luminal osmos, so within the lumen itself, uh, can be either electrolyte, too many electrolytes in the lumen, or nutrients in the, the lumen. Those additional osmos will basically result in water flowing into the lumen of the intestine, resulting in diarrhea. So one of the key things I always teach our fellows is Stool osmolarity is always isoosmolar. It's mm -hmm. always 290, right? So you can imagine if you've got a lot more osmoles, either nutrients from enteral intake or endogenous electrolytes, then you're going to, you have to dilute those osmoles with water and that results in diarrhea, right? So. I think it, it helps us understand it a little bit better. Yeah. It's like more meaningful to divide it into diet induced. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ion trans absorption, uh, secretion. Yeah. It's not all yeah. secretory or, and there's like an osmotic factor in all kinds of diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is, what are those osmos? Are they electrolytes? Right. right. 
you know, or are they nutrients? And if they're electrolytes, it's going to be yours kind of secretory diarrhea because your gut is secreting and absorbing right. in normal settings plenty yeah. but if it's abnormal then you get your you can have excessive amount of osmos of electrolytes there and then the water has to come in to dilute it right so most congenital diarrheas and enteropathies are monogenic disorders. I think you mentioned that a few times. So what yeah. is the role of genetic testing in the evaluations of infants with congenital diarrhea? So yeah, I think DNA sequencing is really an essential part to evaluate patients with code. And I think I have like a relatively simple approach. And once again, it depends on the institution that you're at, certainly at what country you live in. Um, but if you have somebody who looks like it's a tufting enteropathy um, and, you know, there's a founder variant, for instance, in Mexicans and people from the Middle East for tufting enteropathy, you can sequence by Sanger sequencing just that exon that's specific for that group of individuals. That's an unusual circumstance. Well, depending on where you live, it could be uh, could be very helpful, right? But for most of the time, you know, you're not going to be able to rely on this founder mutation. So you've got to do next generation sequencing. So, of course, whole exome sequencing is super important. It's beneficial. What's key, and many times is not done, is really doing trio sequencing, mm -hmm. if you can do that. That means the index case, the patient, mm -hmm. and the two parents. That's super important. And many of us are, have moved on to whole genome sequencing, right? Um, and that's important because sometimes whole exome isn't helpful. Um, and you need to look deep in an intron, for instance. Um, so that would be useful in that particular setting. And we've been doing RNA sequencing or um, starting some projects, uh, RNA sequencing of organoids um, to help kind of define a better group of all of these uh, particular patients. So I think you asked, has genetic testing changed over time, right? Yeah, How's it, how, how has it changed and how, where will we go? Yeah, so it's like really amazing how immensely it's changed. So when I was a fellow, you know, if, if you wanted to work on something, you had to like clone your own gene, like what we did with the glucose transporter. You know, and then subsequent years, I used to collect DNA samples from physicians and families of code patients, and we would do Sanger sequencing of 10 or 20 genes. Uh, but that's really a slow and not a very practical uh, approach. Um, and I remember the, we did whole exome sequencing in my lab and I just was blown away. This was like 2010. And within a couple of weeks, we got results from 20,000 genes, okay? And we were just, you know, it was like such a game changer. So I think that's where things are moving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a, a really important point. And then from a, like a clinical perspective, you know, so we talked about the fasting trial, upper GIS mobile fall through endoscopy, you know, where along the workup, especially if you, it does sound like a, an infant with very early onset, like high volume diarrhea, 
where do you start ordering that genetic testing? Mm. Like, do you try to do it? I mean, obviously there's some weight. Um, yeah. When do you usually yeah. think about that? That's a really great question. I think if you've got a child in the first uh, week of life with really severe diarrhea, you've got to send off uh, whole exome sequencing. Okay. Yeah. If it's, if it's somebody who starts um, basically at four to six weeks, it could be allergy. It could be infectious. Mm -hmm. Of course, whole exome is not going to help you. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's a persistent diarrhea, you really should consider uh, when those inflammatory diarrheas doing whole exome sequencing. Yeah. So as a follow-up for that, I know we do them here at Nationwide and, and you do them where you are, but not every organization may be doing them now. So if we're at practicing at a center that we don't have easy access to that, how would we get it done? Well, sometimes it's an insurance problem, right? And uh, some insurance companies really uh, don't like to support it, but the prices have gone down really pretty dramatically, right? Um, so there are lots of commercial companies. GeneDX is one. There's just a, a lot of them. There's some institutions that, that have um, and promote actually uh, whole exome sequencing and receive samples from the outside. Um, but maybe I could give you a little link and provide you a link of some uh, suggested places. Yeah, we that, yeah might, I think that, that might be helpful. helpful. Yeah, because yeah. I think, you know, especially if you're practicing in a place where you don't have easy access to that, it would be helpful. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we talked a lot about, you know, trying to figure out what the specific cause of the congenital diarrhea is, if there is one. And uh, we've, but we haven't talked too much about management. And obviously, once you find a specific cause that might change what you do, um, but what are like the basic principles that you follow while you're doing your evaluation from a treatment standpoint? Great question. So, you know, it's changed over time. I'm embarrassed to say that 10 or 20 years ago, we some of these cases would spend a year or two in the hospital. Wow. Okay. And these kids would eventually get discharged home with the diagnosis of chronic diarrhea of unknown etiology. So I think what really we should try to do is quickly diagnose the patient as soon as we possibly can, right? And, um, you know, I, I would argue that the overall goal here is really to provide the family with the appropriate anticipatory guidance that's going to be required of them to help manage their child kind of long-term. Yeah. And really to do this, uh, you to get the detailed assessment, you're gonna need DNA sequencing under most circumstances, or you could do, you could rely on clear-cut histologic um, evidence. But I think the category, what you wanna to try to do is figure out, does this kid have intestinal failure i.e. requires CVC and TPN, or is it possible through, you know, nutrient challenges, dietary challenges, does this patient have a selective uh, transport defect? And you don't need TPN, and you just have to put them on a selective diet. Glucose malabsorption is one example of that. So that's really important to try to figure that out quickly because families want to go home, right? right? And you want to do it as safely as possible. And so, you know, if you think about uh, if they have those problems with absorption and secretion of electrolytes, those kids are going to need to have IV electrolytes and, and fluid typically to go home with. 
Um, and that could be done pretty quickly. The generalized ones, you're going to have to compress the TPN and begin teaching the families uh, how to use TPN as you wait for the sequencing results to come back, right? right. And um, anyway, so I think those are really the important uh, important things. So, and of course, if it's an inflammatory uh, type of code problem, it you know those patients generally are going to require TPN, but it depends on the specific monogenic disorder um, and how they have to really be managed. So. Um, I think that's how I would basically look at it. So this is, once again, those kids with this persistent diarrhea that isn't allergy, isn't kind of infectious in origin. We've talked a lot about how genetic uh, sequencing has changed over the past years um, and how diagnosing these children has changed as well. I I don't imagine a lot of them are still in the hospital for a year, but maybe they are. But what changes do you see in the future in the evaluation and management of infants with congenital diarrhea? Well, that's another great question, Peter and Jen. So I think, you know, it. I'm going to just put in a plug for, if I can do that, for our NIH-funded consortium called PD Code, P-E-D-I-C-O-D-E, one word, which is based out of UCLA Sick Kids in Toronto. Uh, Boston Children's and Vanderbilt. And so we have clinical and research scientists that are interested in these code disorders. And actually, we have a cool website, uh, pdcode.org. People can look at it to get more information. And our focus is really to move us forward in this particular clinical entity. We were looking at novel disorders that haven't been described yet. We've got a couple that the group is working on trying to understand the natural history of these patients, which is really important, and also trying to better understand the mechanism by which these patients actually get diarrhea. And then more importantly, looking for novel approaches to treat them. So uh, along those lines, uh, one of our investigators, uh, a group from Toronto, initiated a clinical trial for kids with children with TTC7A mutations. These patients have diarrhea and immunodeficiencies. And uh, it looks like they may have found a a therapy to at least uh, attenuate the severity of their clinical problems. And from the Vanderbilt group, actually recently, like last month, described in a mouse model of microvillous inclusion disease, the use of, uh, I think, a couple of FDA-approved drugs that significantly improve the diarrhea actually in these mice. Now these are mice, right? So, but you got to start somewhere. Right. right. So I, you know, I really think that, that I'm confident that this uh, type of approach and perhaps even gene therapy with CRISPR-Cas9 might be useful in improving the symptoms of these patients and to eventually take them off TPN. Yeah. It's exciting. I think, uh, I feel like better genetic understanding of you know the mechanisms is only going to accelerate you know therapy development so absolutely oh for sure yeah thank you so much again for talking to us about you know congenital diarrhea and even though these disorders are rare obviously the clinical scenario is something we see fairly regularly you know when we're on service Mm -hmm. Um, but for you so looking back on your career thus far what do you think has been the most valuable advice that you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners 
got plenty of advice. Okay. <laughs> so, so let me just tell you quickly, because I know we have a limited amount of time. So I, you know, I'm well towards the end of my career. And I think it's, uh, it's incredible to me at this point, how quickly these years have passed, right? So I think it's really important to enjoy what you're doing. I frankly love what I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. And really to savor your interactions with some patients, certainly your colleagues. And I think at the end, you want to really feel like you've made a difference. I think that's really important. Um, and I think probably the most important lesson that I've learned relates to what we now call family and work life balance, mm -hmm. right? That's super important. So really, you know, the take home message, of course, is balance your professional activities and remember to stay actively engaged with your spouse and your kids. Yeah. Very important, right? Um, and so I think the other message I wanted to convey to people is I also think this whole field, as you guys had alluded to, this subfield of genetic gastroenterology is really here to say, stay. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think it's going to become more prominent um, as the cost of next generation sequencing begins to drop even further. Um, and so I anticipate that it will have really a growing presence in our practice, certainly in the academic center. So fellows, um, some of us are too old to learn uh, this stuff, but fellows certainly should be, get, begin to feel comfortable really reviewing these whole exome sequencing results yeah. to understand really their limitations, their strengths. And um, you really should be able to interpret it without the assistance of your friendly local geneticists because their workload is going to go up as the price drops and next generation sequencing really uh, expands throughout all the subspecialties. So I think that is really important. So another important message that I like to convey to all of our fellows, not just in GI, but other fellowship programs here at UCLA, is, you know, all of us, maybe since we were young kids, wanted to become pediatricians or physicians. And we were so happy when third year med school started and we started taking care of patients. And then finally, as residents, we felt like maybe second year of residency, you could really take care of somebody, right? Um, and then you move on to kind of fellowship and you, if, you know, I think what is important is since all of our fellows are really required to do research projects, I think those trainees that are really academically oriented and have this kind of inquisitive streak uh, that they may have, if it's feasible, you know, considering, consider moving out of your comfort zone of patient management and really pursue a career in bench focused translational research. I know very few people do it. It's really rewarding. You know, and I think that our subspecialty is really at a cusp for really remarkable opportunity. There's so many things happening now with CRISPR-Cas9, mm -hmm. stem cell biology. And I think we could change the lives of really, of many of our patients with these really severe ailments. And, you know, further defining really the basis of these disorders and making a really meaningful effort at uh, curing them of their ailments is now, I think, feasible, right? So yeah. 
we need more physician scientists who who uh, know the clinical problem and therefore have the motivation and the tools to go out and come up with new therapies. Yeah. Although interpreting your own sequence would be very challenging. I had to give you a <laughs> You're young, you can do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna need like a Cliff Notes version to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, this has just been wonderful. So as we're closing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Um, look, if you have any code patients, feel free to call. Always happy. Myself and other members of our group, PD code group, always happy to help um, in the clinical evaluation, management, diagnosis, especially of the really unusual ones. Happy to help. So uh, send me an email. Awesome. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Again, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. That was an awesome episode. Yeah, it was great talking to him. I mean, it's just crazy to think how far we've come with genetic testing. Mm -hmm. And probably, I can't even imagine where we're going to be in 50 years. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would help us out if you did one of our all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through our website, www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion, views, and documentations. <laughs> documentations? <laughs> Sorry, thinking about my clinic notes yeah. that I still need to do. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Talk to you later.